You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, O'Reilly's Max Slocum chats with Sue Charman Anderson, a journalist, consultant, and founder of Ada Lovelace Day. Their wide-ranging conversation touches on why Sue founded Ada Lovelace Day and why it's been so successful. She also talks about the current state of social media and the past, present, and future of blogging. Enjoy the show. Uh, you founded Ada Lovelace Day in 2009, is that right? Yes, it is. Um, what was your motivation for that? So I was doing a lot of tech conferences in um, sort of through from mid-2000. Um, uh, so 2008, 2007, I was doing a lot of conferences. Um, and it became really obvious very quickly that there were not very many women on stage. Um, and every time that there was a new tech conference, there would be a discussion on the blogs about where are the women in tech. And quite often we would end up challenging the organizers and saying, you know, this is you know, either a fully male lineup or there's only one or two women. And you'd look at the audience and the audience would be very heavily skewed male. Um, and we would get reactions back from organizers along the lines of, well, yeah, we asked women and they all said no. Uh, we couldn't find any women. Uh, and my favorite, there aren't any women in tech. And well, that's kind of <laughs> odd because I'm kind of in tech and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm a woman. Uh, I've got lots of friends who are women. Um, so this, it, it seemed to be um, this odd issue where women weren't getting the uh, opportunities to speak that, that men were getting. And every time someone would write a blog post, it'd be rant, 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 rant. And then in the comments, it would be, tell us who you think ought to be on stage. And people would start listing women um, in tech. And I realized that even though I was alive to the issue of you know, visibility of women in tech, I was struggling to name women who were senior, who were luminaries. Um, I, was, I, I could name lots of my friends and say, you know, these are women that I think are doing really cool things. But when it came to actually looking historically and looking at women who had um, achieved uh, you know, great things in technology, it was really hard for, even for me to name them. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. I need to know who these women are. And so the first day to Lovelace Day was a day of blogging about women in tech. It was the 24th of March in 2009, um, which was a completely random date I picked because I was impatient and I wanted it to happen soon. <laughs> um, and, and it just really took off immediately. It was, uh, I was quite astonished, actually. I thought it would be kind of me and a couple of mates and we'd have a little blog thing going and, and that would be that. And in the end, it was huge. Why do you think it caught on like it did? I think it really hit a nerve. Mm. Um, and I think it was something that there were a lot of women who were angry about the state of play and about the issues around um, conferences. But the media caught on to it as well. So I found myself on sort of BBC News talking about Age of Lovelace Day. Um, and there was a huge amount of media coverage, not just from journalists saying, you know, this thing is going on, but also from journalists engaging with the day. So we saw a lot of um, columns about, well, these are my women in tech that I think are awesome, and looking at um, Ada Lovelace's work and, and other historic women. Hmm. Um, and it just, it, it flew. Um, and I really sort of felt for the next sort of three or four years that I was kind of running to catch up with where it had gone in that first year. Um, and I think I sort of finally feel like I've got there, that I've, mm -hmm. I've kind of managed to grab hold of its coattails again and say, you know, kind of <laughs> pull it back under control. Um, but it's been amazing. What's the biggest issue you're running into with it right now? 
The main problem, not just for me, but for other organizations dealing with women in, in STEM is funding. Mm. Um, a lot of the organizations that have started, so when I started Ada Lovelace Day, um, there were quite a lot of uh, professional organizations. So um, uh, BCS Women in the UK, um, the Women's Engineering Society, all of these sort of um, organizations that are affiliated to uh, specific professions and professional bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, there were quite a few grassroots organizations around as well, um, sort of like Girl Geek Dinners and the Blog Her Conference that had been going for a right, while. Right. But in the last three, four years, there's been an explosion of very small grassroots groups, um, some of whom are incredibly focused on one particular issue. And they're almost all run by either very, very small groups of women or individuals who um, some of them have day jobs, some of them are freelance, and they are all at a scale where getting funding is phenomenally difficult. And they're all hampered by a lack of cash, basically. Um, so when I was back in the UK in June, I put together a funding meeting and got as many women and, and men from these sorts of organizations together as possible. And everyone has the same issue. They're sort of too small and they lack the resources to go after the sort of major sources of funding. So, um, you know, grants and mm. government funding is out of reach um, and lack the sort of time and resources and experience to go after, say, corporate funding. So Ada Lovelace Day has been funded. We've got a number of sponsors that have allowed me since uh, January of this year to go full time working on it. But that came through really by luck. You know, I, I didn't have the infrastructure to be searching for funding. It, it, and I'm, I'm very lucky that it came to me. Mm -hmm. um, but that funding issue is a major problem um, because it's really preventing what I think would be very rapid growth in support organizations for women in, in tech and in STEM. That's interesting because it's related to the next question I have for you, which is, are there particular groups or organizations that you feel are doing exemplary work? in relation to equality and technology? There are a lot of groups doing fantastic stuff and really sort of too many to go through. But some of the groups um, that I uh, really think are, are doing fantastic work, um, there's a, a woman called Dr. Sue Black in the UK who is has a, a program called Tech Mums. And the premise of this is if you teach uh, mums especially to code, you're not just empowering them and reskilling them and giving them new career opportunities um, and particularly flexible career opportunities because of the um, way that you can do remote working. You are also empowering them to empower their children. Um, and so if you have a generation of, of mums who understand technology, who feel confident with technology, they pass that on, not just to their sons, but to their daughters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an incredibly important way forward in terms of um, bringing uh, a new generation of women into technology and that's into interesting. STEM. That's really interesting. So it's very proactive, mm -hmm. looking for opportunities to not just expand to one particular group, but to have repercussions beyond that as well. Um, you started consulting on social media in 2004, is that right? Yeah. What was the social media landscape like in 2004? I was trying to think back on it. What, what, it, what was that? So we didn't even use the word social media right. at that point. I mean, my first uh, job title, my first self-given job title was blog consultant, <laughs> which sounds like really twee now. You kind of think, yeah, right. who would focus just on blogs? But um, I started blogging in 2001 yeah. um, and 
started getting involved in um, what we would now call social media, so wikis and using wikis in enterprise and, and looking at how we can use um, blogs especially to uh, facilitate communication. Um, and I had a particular interest in what happens inside businesses. So how can you get people off email and onto social tools? Um, and so there were some enterprise platforms that were around at the time um, and blogging was uh, a big part of that. So it was a big push to install blogs internally and, and that sort of met with varying degrees of success. A lot of the time it was about execution rather than the tools. So. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a habit that people had of, oh, we'll just throw stuff at the, at the wall and see what sticks. And you know, it wasn't long before it was like, no, actually, we kind of know what you need to do. We, there are key things that have to be in place before you can actually find success with sort of social media internally. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a really exciting time. I mean, I remember coming over to San Francisco, um, must have been 2005, and and trying to meet up with everybody who did this kind of work and, and finding very few people mm -hmm. uh, doing that. I mean, certainly in the UK, there was only a handful of us. Um, and there was a lot of attitude about, oh, well, you know, this will never fly. No one will ever pay for this kind of consulting. You know, you're deluding yourself. Sure. Right. And, um, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, right. and, right. you know, all the big agencies are into it and, and everybody... Um, has all the big companies have internal uh, social media teams and it's, it's a big part of, of how we do business now. Yeah, that whole concept of a social media team, I remember when that first popped up, it's like, oh, come on, we really need a social media? Now it's just a default, it's a core component. Digital natives, this is a term that comes up a lot and there seems to be this assumption that a digital native sort of inherently understands things to a degree that non-digital natives don't. What's your take on that? I think it's complete nonsense, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. It is. I mean, it's every generation creates uh, some kind of barrier between them and the people who are younger than them. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I mean, this goes back. You can see kind of, you know, Greek philosophers complaining about the youth today, you know, writing things down instead of memorizing them and, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I think it, it's a natural sort of part of, sure. of, you know, as you grow older, you start to look at the generation below you and see differences instead of similarities. But with technology, you know, no one is born understanding how to use an iPhone sure, or, right. or a Mac or whatever. You know, this is stuff that you learn. And that means that if this is stuff that you learn, whether and how deeply you learn it depends a lot on your exposure to it. Mm. So there are still a lot of kids who are maybe not interested in tech, they're more interested in sport or art. Um, there are kids who don't have access. So maybe their parents either haven't prioritized or can't afford to have technology around. Um, there are kids who are prevented from gaining access because maybe their parents believe that this is not appropriate for them. So there is a huge variety um, and a huge spectrum in the experience of technology that um, young people have. And it is very poor of, of us, of our generation, to be looking only at the tech-enabled kids and saying that they represent all kids, because mm. they don't. Right. And I think it's very dangerous as well for us to be looking at them as the trendsetters, because they're only representative of their little bit of the demographic. And if we focus on them to the exclusion of kids who don't have access or who, um, who don't have interest, then what we're doing is we're actually cutting out a good, a good chunk of the, the next generation and saying that they're not important to us. And we have to think very carefully about how we uh, communicate about technology and about science to um, kids for whom 
this is not something that's normal within their immediate surrounds. Mm -hmm. So going back to, to the to women in STEM, one of the, the predictors of how well a girl will do in STEM subjects is how much STEM capital there is in her family. So that's like if her parents are in STEM, you know, mm -hmm. if her dad's in tech, if her mum's in tech, then she will be more likely to go on into tech. And, and so when we are thinking about these um, generational changes, yes, there are changes in attitudes, but that's a cultural thing. And we need to be careful that we don't generalize excessively from mm -hmm. the one part of the next generation that we identify with. Right. We have to look outside of that and say, what about the kids who don't have access? How do we reach them? How do we empower them? How do we make sure that they have the understanding they need? Because the world is increasingly digital and they're at a disadvantage by not having access. So how do we make sure that they are empowered as well? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was teaching some classes to undergraduates who, and this was right when the first concept of digital native was taking mm -hmm. root. And it was very clear very quickly that while they were comfortable with certain types of technology, they, that didn't mean that they understood all of the nuance, right? It's, it's not like uh, they came fully formed and could develop a social media campaign for you, right? Exactly. Like they just didn't necessarily know it. And what I found was some of the other uh, instructors that I was working with were making conclusions about these students and they were not giving the students what they needed in that regard. And, and I think it's, it is problematic because um, being able to use a subset of technology, for example, using your phone to access Facebook, does not mean is, that you yes. understand how the rest of the internet works. Right. And in fact, we had this experience a few years back. My um, uh, husband's stepniece came to stay. Um, and we were saying, oh, you know, if you want to go to the, we were in London at the time, you, know, you want to go to the Tower of London, it's really cool, and, and there's lots of stuff there. And you can book tickets on the internet. And kind of gave her my laptop and she didn't know what to do with it. She didn't know how to sure. search the internet. Right. As far as she was concerned, the internet was Facebook. And she didn't know how to use a URL because her browser just automatically goes, goes into Facebook at home. It's set up to just, mm -hmm. that's the opening page. She was completely lost. Right. And so, you know, that sense of, um, oh, they all know how to use it. Well, we have to make sure that we're not making assumptions um, based on a superficial understanding of how they're using technology. Um, and I think you know, this is all really important because what you see, and going back to social media, is this big push at the moment. Uh, and really, sort of like for the last three or four years, the social media is a young person's area right. of expertise. Yes. So yes. you get kind of companies saying, well, we'll get the intern to do the social media account. The intern who maybe doesn't have the emotional maturity to deal with mm -hmm. complaints and problems, um, who maybe isn't uh, fully aware of how to communicate in a sort of uh, uh, to a mass audience like on Twitter. Um, and there's a degree of ageism involved. Because when you actually look at the people who have that experience and who understand um, social technology, there are a lot of people who actually were there from the beginning who are in their sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, who understand this stuff implicitly. You know, it's not that they are digital natives. They created the digital reality that, that so-called digital natives now inhabit. Mm -hmm. So they understand it from the bottom up because they built it. Sure, they right? literally built the thing. They literally yeah. built it. <laughs> and so when people of that age group are being dismissed as being um, not social media aware because of their age, we're actually storing up problems because what we're doing is that expertise is not being transferred down the line to the younger kids because mm -hmm. the younger kids are coming in, they're getting kind of 
um, fairly senior roles very young when, when they really don't have the breadth of expertise. So we, we're really kind of creating future problems. Um, and I think social media is, has stagnated in terms of the way that it's used and the way that it's developed because we haven't actually had that sort of knowledge transfer and because actually the older you get, the harder it is to be taken seriously if you're in social media. So there's this kind of like odd dynamic that's developed over the last sort of like five years where so C-level um, executives are saying, you know, this is, this is a young person's game and they're cutting out all of the expertise from people who've been doing this for over a decade, um, the people who invented it, the people who actually sort of built the world that they now take for granted. Um, so I think there's an awful lot of um, thinking mm. that needs to be done about exactly how we use an, uh, social media and, and who we get, to, who we learn about social media from. How do you see that playing out? Is that going to fix itself or is that going to take some catalysts to make it better? I think it needs some, somebody to really start making the point. I think part of the issue though is you know, going back to the generational divides that we create. Um, if you think about how very senior executives sometimes deal with technology, mm. um, you definitely see this trend of kind of like going, right. you know, put the barriers up. This is a young person's game. Therefore, not only do I not need to learn about it, and I shouldn't learn about it because I'm old and I'll never understand it because digital native. Right. Right. <laughs> and and right. so it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating division that satisfies um, the emotional needs of the uh, sort of C-level suite. Um, and that they don't want to have to engage with it, so they push it off to younger folks and mm -hmm. say, yeah, that's your domain and, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. There's sometimes a weird sense of pride, too. And, well, I'm not yeah. on email, I'm not on Twitter, yeah. I'm not... Yeah. I mean, you see that, too, with, with uh, not just weird. with technology, but also with science. Mm. So there's this sort of sense of, like, well, you know... <laughs> I don't understand any of that science stuff. Right, right. And, and, and this sort that's of... That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. <laughs> I mean, how many people would, would turn around and say, well, I don't understand Shakespeare. Why would I, why would I right. ever read Shakespeare? Right. You know, I mean, it wouldn't that's a happen good point. from the other direction. Um, and it really is a sort of, uh, you know, see peace knows two cultures and, and how we bridge those. And it's a very difficult area to operate in because neither side is actually that comfortable with the idea of meeting. Hmm. So there's a, a lot of bridge building that still needs to, to be done. I don't know how it's going to happen because I'm not sure that people are taking it seriously. I think it's still really yeah. seen as, you know, um, maybe a couple of whiny people on the internet who uh, don't like the way things are going. Yeah, I don't does. know, maybe I am turning into an old curmudgeon, but... <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think um, maybe I am too, but it, I, I think you're right. I think that there's this kind of, there's, there's this odd sense that social media sometimes is frivolous. Yeah. And, and that's not that's not quite right. Yeah. And, and that's also something where, you know, you do see um, that attitude being taken particularly towards um, whatever it is that young girls do. So, yes. you know, if young yep. girls like uh, music and bands, well, you know, that's that's kind of silly and frivolous. But then if they like technology, then they're sort of like nerdy geeks and weird. Um, yeah, if they like makeup, then they're shallow and vain. If they don't wear makeup, then they take no pride in their, uh, their appearance. So there is a sort of thing that like anything that fits in that sphere is, is, can be denigrated no matter how you 
you look at it, there's always a way to, to make it sound bad. Um, and when social media, you know, it's social, so obviously, you know, women do that because there's this kind of conception that, you know, women are inherently more social, right. which is a nonsense. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's not the case at all. When it comes to um, how much men and women talk, men actually talk more than women, statistically, and they gossip more than women, but they call it networking. Um, or sports. Or sports. Yes. So this sense of, men, of right. um, you know, what women do and what women are good at has sort of like been constructed. And, and quite oftentimes, um, women are kind of like dumped into this bucket of, oh, well, you know, you're social and, and you do empathy and that. So you can do all the, the social media stuff. And therefore, because it's become uh, associated with young women, it's therefore also devalued. Mm. Um, and it's the same. It is actually the the opposite of the process that happened sort of through the 80s of how women were, um, as computing became professionalized and as um, the advertising started to push computers towards small businesses, it started focusing on advertising to men. And so women stopped being seen as computer programmers, which they were before, and started being seen as props in ads. And therefore, you start to get this separation between, you know, what's a man thing and what's a woman. I mean, hmm. And you see this all over the place, right? You see this with um, doctors and nurses. You know, you see it with arts and crafts. You see, you know, professionalization of you know, tailors and seamstresses. Every time you get professionalization, it becomes a man thing. And the, the less professional, um, less worthy thing is a woman thing. Um, so this is not anything particularly special or particularly new. Yeah. It's just a reenactment of something that we've seen over and over again. I think what we have now is much more visibility over what's happening and therefore a bigger opportunity to say, actually, this is not what we want. This is not the future that we, we want to build and that therefore we need to take steps to do something about it. Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I want to double back to something. You were talking about blogging earlier and I have a real soft spot for blogging <laughs> myself. What's your what's your thoughts on the on the state of blogging? State of blogging. Um, Please don't say it's dead. <laughs> no, I don't think it's dead. I think it has suffered mightily from the general loss of RSS. Mm. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, RSS was a, a kind of really important glue that a lot of technologies relied upon to feed things into one another. Um, and the fact that it became, became unfashionable to think about RSS um, and, you know, closure of Google Reader and all the rest of it has um, really had a negative impact, I think, on how easy it is for bloggers to reach an audience. Um, no one reads my blog unless I tweet stuff. <laughs> I mean, it, it's amazing, you know, it, it's, if, I, if I can write blog posts, it doesn't matter what the blog post is about. If I don't tweet it, no one will read it's it. It's as though it's in private mode. It's, you know, if, if a blog's written in the forest and no one tweets about it, does it exist? Right, uh, right. And probably not. Is it a journal at that point, right? Um, and I, I think part of it's, you know, we've had a lot of fragmentation. So, mm. you know, it's, it used to be that you kind of had, you know, Blogger and, and WordPress and LiveJournal and um, Movable Type. Mm -hmm. uh, and now you've got, you know, Tumblr and Medium and, you know, Vox and all these different platforms, all these sort of... Um, ways you can communicate. You've got Facebook, um, a lot of people communicating more visually through um, photography, through Instagram. Uh, Twitter is kind of like really where people are getting their news from a lot now. So your attention is fragmented, which makes it a lot harder to actually follow blogs. And, and I, in the end, kind of um, 
ran away from my RSS reader because there were too many unread posts right. in it. And right. periodically, I can just mark them all red yep. and then and cull the list. Uh, yep. And it never worked. It's a great RSS purge, right? It right. is because now stuff kind of falls in your lap. Um, and, uh, you know, you have a limited amount of time each day to spend reading the internet. Um, you could spend your whole life reading the internet and never get to the bottom of it. Um, and there's just more content being produced that it becomes impossible as a, as a reader to... I, I don't even get to read the stuff I want to read. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I find it... I don't write as much as I used to. Partly that's time. Um, I still kind of find myself walking down the road, oh, I might just blog about that mm. later. And, and, you know, you know... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a really burning issue for me now right. to kind of go, right, okay, I'm going to carve out some time to write a blog post. It's because I'm not good at brief. Mm. You know, I don't do that. I always used to say, just do one paragraph oh, and no. then kind of like 3,000 words later, you're right. like, yeah, that didn't right. work. It's either going to be a lot or it's just going to be aspirational. Right? Well, it's going to either be a lot or it's going to be Twitter, right? Yeah, right, right. That's kind of how it is. I don't think blogging's going anywhere, but I think it... Um, I don't think it's going to come back either mm. to the levels that it was like 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, I think about when I started, actually, it's longer than that, you know, 2001, um, I was kind of chronically underemployed. Um, I was stuck living in Dorset, miles from nowhere. Um, and blogging really was a way for me to connect with people. And it was one of the first times in my life that I felt I found a true peer group was through meeting other bloggers mm -hmm. um, because suddenly I knew all these people who were into the same kind of tech that I was into, didn't feel like this kind of slightly peculiar weirdo, you know, I kind of felt normal and, and felt like, you know, these, these people understand me. Mm. And I'm still very good friends with a lot of people that I met back then, but none of us blog as much as we used to. Yeah. And I think in part that's because we get our social connections online um, through things like Twitter. Um, so that side of things is, is, is satisfied through more immediate tools. That's um, interesting. I, I hadn't really considered that, the division between the act of writing on a blog and that that's one outlet and that the social component that has largely been addressed by tools that frankly are easier to use and faster. And so maybe part of that evolution was simply that it wasn't so much that people were necessarily looking for the writing outlet, it, they were looking for the social component. And they I think found so, that elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, because you know, comments at, um, sections used to be so vibrant and yes. we would have these long rambling conversations and it was always very interesting, the other people's points of view. And now, you, you know, I write a blog post, if someone's going to comment, it's almost always through Twitter. Right. Yeah, so your blog post, you know, all that goes through Twitter. Mm -hmm. And you even end up trying to have these sort of like detailed conversations through Twitter, which is really not yeah. designed for at all. And I'm like, why is that not on the blog? I mean, you've yeah. just sent me like 10 yeah. tweets in a row because you couldn't fit it all in. Yep. Why did you not just like put that in a comment? Yes. But I yeah. think it, it's about the immediacy of it and, and that I... And we like immediacy. I mean, you know, it's it's that little um, that sort of social uh, hit that you get when someone replies to something, and yep. you want it there, and and it's right in front of you. Right. Um, and you don't get if you've got to write a comment on a blog, that's kind of like ten minutes writing, and they may not see it for twenty four hours. Yeah. And it's so, and it's just kind of right there. There isn't the chance that somebody else maybe is going to necessarily see it either. Right. Yeah. With Twitter, you've got that chance of that serendipitous exposure. What people or projects are you following these days? Um, I'm obviously following a lot of stuff in the uh, women in STEM arena. So um, I mentioned Sue Blacker. There's also um, Travel Blazers, um, which is celebrating women who work with travels. So archaeologists, paleontologists, um, geologists. Uh, and I, I just, I love that whole branding. It's absolutely That's wonderful. Fantastic, yeah. uh, they're, uh, Tori Herridge doing some brilliant stuff. Um, but also I'm a lapsed geologist is, is how I think of myself. So I like to keep an eye on what's happening in 
um, the, the world of uh, geophysical hazards especially. So I'm reading up a lot on the Cascadia fault zone at the moment, the, the subduction zone. There was that really great New Yorker article and then I brought um, Sandy Broughton's uh, Full Rip 9.0. Terribly dramatic sounding book. It's brilliantly written. It's yeah. a really great read. Um, it arrived uh, on Monday just before I left for the airport um, and I got through half of it on the plane. So, you know, no working on the plane for me. It was just like, <laughs> this is great thing. Um, and I try and uh, keep abreast of what's happening with volcanoes around the world. Mm. Um, so I've, I've had one experience where my professional life, my sort of consulting life has overlapped with my degree, um, which was actually around the Ayafiatl eruption in 2010. Really? Um, and I ended up doing a piece of work for Chatham House about the media response. So I went and analysed um, uh, samples of media coverage of the ash cloud disruption and looked at uh, what kind of voices dominated the conversation. We found somewhat unsurprisingly that it was mainly um, passenger airlines were dominating the conversation. So over you know, scientists, meteorologists, um, cargo companies so a lot of people were affected but the the human story of um oh dear someone on holiday is stuck in 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 um egypt or whatever was the the main narrative um but it was really interesting because you know there's a lot of there was a lot to learn about um high impact low probability events from ifiatli Interesting. um so i like to keep an eye on on what's going on i don't get to um spend quite as much time watching webcams of volcanoes <laughs> erupting as i used to <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's amazing, you know, that the, they're all so well uh, monitored now um, that you can there's quite a lot of, of you know, interruption happens and like, you can go and watch it in real time Is that right? on the webcam. It's, it's not brilliant. as much of a novelty anymore. Um, actually, I, th I think it gives us a much better understanding in, in terms of, you know, science communication um, to be able to say, you know, this uh, eruption is happening and we have, you know, this imagery and you can go and watch it on the webcam. And it gives people, I think, a... A much sharper idea of the impact that it's having on the local people, mm -hmm. and I think that's really important yeah. because we need to understand, you know, the um, geophysical um, events like eruptions and earthquakes are yeah, they're interesting scientifically, but they also have an impact on the populations that are affected. And it's much easier to communicate that now than it used to be. It used to be quite kind of like you know, five thousand people displaced. Now you see right. the houses covered in ash, and you can empathise a lot more with the people who are affected by it. And I think that's that's really important in terms of encouraging um, people to support those communities, but also in terms of um, preparedness. Um, so, you know, being in San Francisco, I've had a lot of conversations um, about earthquake preparedness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it's something that is very easy to think, you know, this is never going to happen. You know, we're not going to be affected, not in my lifetime. And it's true. Maybe it won't happen in our lifetime, but you still have to be prepared for it. Um, and that's, I think, you know, of, of all the sort of science communication challenges, the sort of high impact, low probability event communication mm -hmm. stuff is really, really challenging. Right. Because how do you get people to spend time, money and emotion on something that may never happen? Right, right. A lot of more post attitude as opposed to pre. Yeah. Uh, and you know, once you start getting into the politics of it, it becomes even thornier because how do you encourage politicians who are notoriously short term in their outlook to start yes, thinking about right. long term? Right. You know, and again, I think I mean, I'm a big fan of cross pollination between different disciplines. Mm -hmm. I think there are lessons there as well for technology. Um, technology moves very fast, but we need to think long term about um, the impacts on society. Um, and that's something that we all need to be a part of that debate. And, and that's that doesn't happen enough. You know, we, we tend to be very focused on, you know, 
who's just done an IPO and who's just launched and you know, what the new Apple device is and all the rest of it. And we need to, as a broad community, also be thinking about the long-term impacts societally. So in terms of um, how we are bringing in um, you know, different points of view, this is where diversity becomes important because different people have different experiences of the world and that uh, should inform our longer debate on how we want to mediate the relationship between society and technology. Great. Well, thank it's, you so much for this. Really, thank you really appreciate it. It's been great. You can reach Sue through her Twitter handle at SUW. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.